Hello. Hello. How you doing tonight? <laughs> <laughs> Bad one? <laughs> oh, let's just say it was an interesting day at work. And I came home, and it was like a Bird Eye Gordon movie. I opened my bathroom door, and my wall is full of ants. <laughs> I'm like, I'm on a second fucking floor. How could this be? <laughs> wow. Only in the bathroom, thank God. And I'm like, what's going on, man? <laughs> Are they giant ants since it's Bird Eye Gordon? <laughs> oh, I know, right? No, the funny thing is, I did I did a deep cleaning Saturday, like, you know, hands and knees, scrubbed the fucking shower, all the walls. I'm like, all right, looks really good. And then I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> we, had a, we had a small ant issue, like, two years ago. Like, where are they coming from? You know, there's a big yard out in the back. But when I lived on the first floor of my old spot, I didn't have any ants in the house. And I had a fucking garden, like, walk out the back door, and you're right there. They just climb up the wall, I guess. It's crazy. It's, I, I, I don't know, man. I, I went on to Google, how do I get rid of these things? <laughs> so I was like, use vinegar and water. Okay. Well, they always say that, yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Then it says, uh, use a flamethrower. <laughs> Nothing. And then I said, hey, I have scrubbing bubbles. Nothing. And then I said, oh, this is what I used last time at work, chalk. Really? Yeah, yeah, I had some chalk, and I just, like, put it all over the place. I see a few, but I was like, what the hell? I said, if that doesn't work, if I open that door after the show, it's like, no! Essential. <laughs> it's almost worth leaving in, right? I was wondering about this. Like, you actually leave this in? This is ridiculous. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> Essential oils. Really? Yeah. So you're yeah, putting yeah. Uh, like peppermint and I don't know what the hell in there, you know? Oregano. I would probably. I would probably. Well, no, I would probably put peppermint and I have uh, lots of lavender, knowing me. Right. And so I'm going to try that if the chalk doesn't work. But the chalk worked before. Right. Like I said a couple of years ago, but I, I don't know where this fucking came from. It was like, mm. wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, you got white tiled walls on the bathroom, and like they're all sparkling clean. And I'm like, I come home, la la la, go take a piss. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, if Joan Collins shows up, or uh, who is that guy from Hotel uh, <laughs> for the TV movie Ants? <laughs> you know, oh it's yeah. Back. Yeah, yeah. Marjo Gartner was in that, wasn't he? Yeah, yes, he yeah. was. Yeah. He was course, actually pretty decent in that, actually. And then, of course, Empire of the Ants, which is why I mentioned Collins. <laughs> mm, I was right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Wow. So let me just... <laughs> and uh, we'll do this in about a minute. So here we sure. go. In the Weird Sense of Science of Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Peter Fonda on the Big Papa Online Network. So good 
evening, and welcome to the second episode of the sixth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, with his ant problems, <laughs> as we discuss the beloved, <laughs> the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Uh, so tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. So tonight, one of New York's own, scion of an acting dynasty that includes his famed father, controversial sister, and indie film regular daughter, Peter Fonda walked a very different path from the man who raised him, in short order becoming the figurehead for a generation. From an oddball pair of Roger Corman quickies that barely seemed to grasp the counterculture they were centered on and ostensibly marketed towards, Peter Fonda took on the role of a lifetime in a film that was just as loose, wild, and freely improvised as the spontaneous youth productions of the era, and yet more profound and incisive than any dozen deliberately crafted, quote, art house and message films. Following up with similarly loaded and relevant films that still adhere to and fall under the umbrella of cult and genre film of the era, like Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, The Last Movie, and even Future World, Fonda would make a sideline in both rural action films and low-key dramas throughout the 70s, appearing in cultier fare like Spasms and Certain Fury in the 80s, and the art house cinema of the early 90s before one last gasp is old Nick himself in the Nicolas Cage Ghost Rider. So join us tonight as we talk to the man who positively embodied the 60s and 70s, the one and only Mr. Peter Fonda, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. So, like I said, I'm Doc Savage, with his Mr. Lewis Paul. I see that Mr. Fond has been in the headlines a couple times this week for minor things and larger things. He, uh, I understand he showed up on the Gilbert Gottfried podcast, of all things, and also that he kind of made some waves in the news. So do you want to uh, mention that one? Yeah, out of the blue, and this is really out of the blue. This is like the best promotion we can get, although the show will air either much later in the summer or in the early fall. As we were discussing and working on the show... Peter Fonda, of all people, appeared out of nowhere. He's He was doing some promotion for a new indie movie that was coming out last Friday, which would have been the 22nd of June. And, you know, because he's Peter Fonda, out of nowhere, because he was disgusted with Donald Trump, like most of us are, mm-hmm. and hopefully a lot of you listeners are still, Unless he's dead by the time this airs, but that's unlikely. <laughs> uh, that Oswald Jr., where are you? Uh, it's it's. But then you stuck with pants. No, we're gonna fucking kill him too. <clears throat> I'm just thinking of like Olympus has fallen. It's such a great movie. The the more I watch that, <laughs> um, just like blow up the whole fucking building. You know, just get them all. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, sorry, folks. Uh, so Peter Fonda tweeted some nasty shit because this was all going on about, you know, they, we found out that they were separating uh, Latino kids from their parents who were trying to come into the country illegally and legally. And the Nazi regime that has taken forward uh, in this country took the kids and put the parents somewhere else. And what the hell is up with that? So this was a big thing going on in the news. This is a big thing going on in the news still. Although Trump says he signed one of his stupid fucking etch-a-sketch decrees (laughs) and said, we will stop this immediately, but apparently it's still going on. So, you know, they set up cages for these kids. In Uh, Walmarts. Abandoned Walmarts. 
some Walmarts, yeah, but apparently they've been drugging them. I don't know yes. if you saw that. I they, did. They, they've been drugging. They've been drugging these kids with psychotropic drugs. Yeah. Like what? What? And, and it's like designed eight. so that these kids are like they're cowering in fear. That's what these drugs are designed to do. Yeah. And in the meantime, it's... the parents are basically being busted on misdemeanors. Because even if you cross the border illegally, that's not a felony. It's a misdemeanor. So everything that they're being it's busted on is nothing. Yeah. They take the family, haul them back over there, right? Whatever you want to think about that. That's your business. But then they're separating these kids and putting them in basically cages. Almost like um, it's definitely at least the same thing as the Japanese internment camps in the 40s, except they didn't separate kids and drug them. But it's more like concentration camps. We're kind of going right back there. And, you know, Trump's been pretty unabashed about his open wolf whistles to that whole community. You know, we're, we're not far, as we once thought, from what happened, you know, 70 years ago. And it's it's a little scary, but it's also a little embarrassing, and it puts a lot of vim and vinegar into those of us who see what's going down. Uh, so, you know, we're not going down without a fight. America's not going to go down without a fight. Uh, rest assured in that much. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, assuredly. Uh, the Japanese internment thing that happened here on this soil... It was a very, very dark period. It shouldn't have happened. I yep. understand it was before my time, but I, I do understand the the hysteria. But there's no hysteria going on in this country except for the fervor that he that he continues to to ramp up and, and embroil in his psychopathic psychopathic fucking followers mm. who sorry folks this is the end, not safe for work podcast. <laughs> who, who, whatever he does, supports him. Yeah. I mean, I still get an occasional on my Facebook page if I get, I, I try to pull back from my anti-Trump post, but as you see, I'm unsuccessful. It's uh, hard because to. It's hard to because I get disgusted. Yeah. And every so often, somebody from like I grew up with, so I maybe have not seen that person in 20, 30, 40 years, but they're on my friends list. And, oh, you know, you collect monkeys or, oh, you're such a sweet girl. or Okay, I banged you when you, we were both in our 20s. But they show up and it's like, he's our president. Make America great. It's very robotic. It's yes. always the same thing. They say the same thing. Give him a chance. Hello, it's going to be two fucking years soon. This is the third year when people start jockeying into position for the next presidency. So, what has he done? Embarrass the country, alienate all our rivals. And he went over to North Korea and he talked to this guy. And I don't know what's going to come of that. But um, he made him a propaganda film. <laughs> yeah, he made him a propaganda and film. And he saluted yes, he one of their soldiers. This is a fucking communist soldier. He's standing there, our president of the United States, saluting him. I mean, and he's made very open overtures to trying to put himself in as president for life, like a dictator would, and some dictators have. I mean, this guy's just amazing. He's actually set himself up as some kind of bulwark. Like, he has no respect for the institution. They always say, oh, you got to respect the office, even if you don't respect the man. He doesn't respect the office. He doesn't respect the institution. He does not respect our country. He doesn't even respect his own followers. He thinks you're all idiots. So come on, wake up already. Turn your filter well, on. Unfortunately, we're going to end up having a civil war. It uh, seems that way. It seems that way. Uh, so we're all going to have to fucking learn how to shoot. I shot really good <sighs> bows and arrows and guns back in the day. So. 
Um, oh, I was the dead I shot, but yeah. Anyway, that's another story. Yeah, we don't want to go there. This it's, it's another story, but you know what? We we might have to arm ourselves against the extreme right. And yeah, uh, it's, it's getting bad out there, people. It's getting that way. So what did Peter Fonda do? Peter Fonda tweeted something akin to the like of they should they should take Melania. Yeah, uh, that's Trump's so-called wife, by the way. Well, Isn't she a man? <laughs> well, anyway, we did an Yeah, she does. <laughs> she might be. There you anyway, go. that's Trump and her son. They said, how about putting him, uh, I'm going to be kind about this, how about putting him in cage and see how you feel, that kind of thing. But he was a, a little bit more brutal about that because yeah. he was disgusted. And Trump attacked him, the FBI investigated. It was kind of, you know, he had a he retracted the tweet. Of course, you, uh, you have to. Yeah, what are you going to do? But, yeah, suddenly Peter Fonda, subject of our show tonight, and 10 minutes of us expounding upon our political beliefs. Um, <laughs> this is what happened. And this is, but you know what? That makes the guy a counterculture hero even more. Yeah. And, but this I will, I will say for turning it back over to you before we get really rolling. There is an interesting thing about Peter Fonda is that he didn't have a particular vocal style as an actor. He didn't have particular mannerisms. Now, what do I mean by that? You know, the, the Sanford Meisner, the uh, Lee Strasberg guys, you know, the guys that came out of those schools, you know, like the De Niro's, the Pacino's, they all had this very New Yorkian kind of thing. You know, be the character, be the uh, embody the the figure you're portraying. Now his thing was to be himself, yes. and I think I think he rebelled against a lot, maybe even maybe even to his father. Yes. But if, but they did make amends at some point, and they they both were in each other's films uh, years later. But uh, he he was like one of our true counterculture heroes, and his sister, who was a big big, along with Donald Sutherland and I never say anything bad about Donald and Elliot Gould, of all people in the 60s, were really out there, along with Neil Young, Crosby, Stills and Nash you know, say what you will about the music these guys were out there for us back in the 60s and early 70s bitching, complaining, but Jane, in recent years has kind of sort of retracted that stuff, which is like, so what, you were fucking fake, you were not true to yourself or to us, but Peter Fonda... She married a rich guy. Oh, right, Ted Turner. I forgot about that. But Peter Fonda has always been Peter Fonda. He's our our Captain America. Exactly, yes. And that's actually, those of you who are wondering why we kind of went off into politics besides current events and how disgusted we all are with what's going down and how it doesn't stop and how stupid people are where they really don't critically examine the actions of this man. Because, you know, okay, you, you agree with me, don't agree with me, that's one thing. But you at least critically examine them. Don't parrot some bullshit you're on Fox News trying to defend the indefensible. Because Peter Fonda has always been a political animal. He has always been a true representative of the counterculture, not just in films, like, oh, I'm putting on an act. This is who the guy is. And like you mentioned about his style, a lot of people say, oh, he doesn't really have a style, or he's very laid back and doesn't come off, you know, whatever on the screen. 
because he's being himself. And that harkens back to yes. an older school of acting, where you had people like a Humphrey Bogart, where you had people like a Clark Gable, who just walked in, and they were their fucking selves. And you actually told them, and they would say something like, just hit your marks and say your lines and get out of there. That's it. There was no bullshit about method acting. Oh, Robert De Niro really became the devil when he did Angel Heart. Fuck you. <laughs> you, are, you are who you are. He is existentially authentic, or at least from what we can see, he is. And that makes him kind of a personal hero. I mean, I've always looked up to him because of Easy Rider and because of some other films he did. I had met him. He was drugged out of his mind. We'll get to that later. But it was fun. I enjoyed seeing him. Like I was like, okay, it's Peter Fonda. He's still the same after all these years. The guy is... Love him or hate him, and I can't see why you wouldn't hate him. You know, he's a, a force of nature in a way. He is who he is, and that's all there is to say for him. I know that sounds vague, but if those of you know what I'm talking about, there's a lot of people out there, actually more people than you would think, that put on a show or are chameleons or, you know, they are this person to this audience and then another person to another audience. Or they shake your hand and they're all friendly to your face and then they stab you in the back when you turn around. This isn't just acting. This isn't just public figures. This is people in your life. He's not that kind of guy. I mean, you can just tell. From all these years of films that he's done, all these appearances he's done, all the times he's been in the news, all his interviews, he's himself. And sometimes he sticks his foot in his mouth like we all do. But he is Peter Fonda, and you're not going to get a lot of bullshit with him. And I really respect that. So one of the reasons I wanted to do the show. So anyway, like you mentioned, Peter Fonda was born in New York City, which surprised me because, as you mentioned, does not have the New York accent, which, you know, we both do which some of the people you mentioned, like De Niro and Pacino, certainly do. You know, Stallone, I mean, none of that kind of stuff. This guy is, he sounds Midwesterner, which is where father was, but not with the drawl either. It's very kind of a vague Midwestern sort of a feel. He makes him sort of an everyman, which kind of comes back to the point. He was kind of a countercultural everyman as we went on. Obviously, we had mentioned his family. Jane had done some things back in the Vietnam era that a lot of people were very upset about and then backtracked later on after, once she got past the China Syndrome in that era, when she was still politically active, she kind of backtracked and became first a fitness guru and then got involved with Ted Turner. And I don't want to say she's become a Republican, but, you know, she's kind of really dialed it back. She's become just a movie figure of some sort, a vague celebrity, if you will, which I always hated, but not the same person she was, whether you liked her or not. His daughter has always been like kind of an art house person, his father's was like a 40s everyman, showing up in Hitchcock films and things, or some Wells films, whatever. But Peter had kind of carved his own niche, and he went off in a weird way. For one thing, it found out much, much later, and talking about family things, that their mother was actually a little bit nutty. She, she committed the suicide, and she was locked up in a, a nut house for a couple of years before that. And Henry did not let them mm. know about this. They had no idea. They found out about this when, oh, geez. I'd say when he was in his 50s, probably. Right. So not too long ago, about, about a good 20-something years ago, right? Yeah. Somebody said he had established a solid reputation as a dropout. <laughs> Basically, he could not get into mainstream cinema per se. He didn't do a lot in the early days. He was part of the, you mentioned the Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and by extension, Buffalo Springfield, because you mentioned Neil Young, too. The Sunset Strip Riot back mm. when. He was part of that. He got arrested with that one. But I, I did want to say, not to interrupt you, I did want to say, like David Carradine, another pseudo-countercultural icon, he did get, you know, he did cut his teeth in uh, live TV and in early TV, like Naked City, yes. Wagon Train, 
Alfred Hitchcock hour. I, I really can't recall him in that. But he did do not too many. No. Which is interesting. He he did occasional appearances, but not too many before he did get a lead of all things in Tammy and the Doctor. <laughs> yes. Which is yeah, like one of those Sandry D things, right? Is yep. that what that was? Yeah. Because yeah. basically we're talking about, and even with that, we're talking about a three-year period maybe. It was like 62 to 65. Occasional mm. TV appearances, a couple of low-rent, uh, one or two, maybe three movies. Nothing major other than what you mentioned, this, <laughs> which was an oddity in itself. But I did want to mention something. Uh, I don't know if you're going to mention The Victors. It was a World War II film. It was kind of gritty for its time. In 1963, he actually won a Golden Globe for New Star of the Year. Now, the Golden Globes back in the day were like, well, maybe even today... They were handing out awards left and right, like, yeah. this guy's notable. Let's give him a star of the year. Let's give this chick a starlet of the year. You know, that kind of thing. But in 1963, he played a kind of shell-shocked, damaged World War II guy in this movie, which was interesting because that was one of the few, probably the only times he would play that kind of role. But anyway, within the first couple of years, there wasn't a lot of merit. It was just kind of there. And you could say the same, if you want to be a little bit blasphemous to certain quarters, about his father. You know, Henry Fonda kind of did a lot of stuff, and not all of it was of note. Um, so, in effect, he was following in his father's footsteps, but not really making much of a name for himself. And all of a sudden, up pops Roger Corman in one of his, eh, not his earliest days. We're already midway through the post cycle, for sure. It's, and, you know, he's got all his usual people that worked with him in the early days. You know, Peter Bogdanovich is working on his film. Bruce Dern pops up in it. Michael J. Pollard would start one of his many little sleazy character roles in it. The Wild Angels. Mm. This film, all right, I saw it again recently. This is what I wrote about it. One of the things you should note is that Nancy Sinatra was in it, which is funny in itself. Those these boots are made yeah, for Yeah, but walking. Nancy's good. Nancy's good in it, though. She is. But mm. just the fact that she's there, you know, these boots are made for walking. Right, uh, right. <laughs> and what would, oddly enough, become one of the prototypes for the late 60s to 70s biker film, Corman delivers a fairly square take on what it must be like to live as a young outsider with street fights, but no weapons, between rival biker gangs beach party style orgies that involve fully clothed folks twisting and making out while hooting and running around like kids playing cowboys and Indians. So good, he repeats it twice the second time at Dern's funeral. Uh, and several relatively tame run-ins with the law. There's even a Dick Miller bit, uh, and there was a little joke about that in the last show, <laughs> all right, all right. where he yells at them for wearing Nazi regalia despite the titles making a swat stick out of the tea. I mean, he's right, but like I said, square old man trying to cover outside of youth culture. Weirdly, he also plays it both ways with some implied rape and drug business and even a death or two, but it's really quite tame. I mean, 1966, look at the cast. You got pudgy, provincial weirdo Michael J. Pollard, Nancy Sinatra, and, you know, love him or no, the skinny, laid-back Peter Fonda as the leader of a chapter of one percenters? Strangely enough, this one got aired at Con. It's hard to believe that this was Fonda's big break after a few TV walk-on parts and one or two forgettable dramas. I mean, the big dramatic crux of the film is that they're too stupid to leave their buddy who got shot by the cops in hospital until he was better and thus wind up responsible for his death. How's that for a poster? Come on. They were too young, too stupid, and now one of them is dead. The Wild Angels. Much soapier, stupider, and less cult than you'd ever expect for a film of silk. The Wild Angels barely one step removed from similar television fare at the time, particularly the more hip and gritty message shows like The Mod Squad, which this could easily have been a two-part episode of. Ooh, you're much too harsh on it, says me. 
Uh, well, I actually had the soundtrack album. Yes, I did. Wow. So, don't ask me what happened to it. I I agree and I disagree. Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the points you have are very valid, but keeping in mind that you know at at, at the time the angels being the Hell's Angels, you know, with the Cause Celebre in New York, mm-hmm. San Francisco, all the different chapters. This would be pre-Altamont, so I I guess Roger Corman is keeping in mind the the expansion of the motorcycle culture, the drug culture, and all that stuff. I think for what it is, it's not too bad. It's not a great film by far, so I agree with you on that. I think the casting is interesting. You know, Bruce Stern is always a fucking nut. Yeah. He's... (laughs) He's an interesting man. Uh, I would love to meet that guy. And and Peter Father, yes, be, being slight, because most of these angels guys, I met. I used to live near Sixth Street, in the village, mm-hmm. and my stepsister, way before then, was living there. And my stepsister was living on Sixth Street between first and no, it was A and B, okay. or first and A, where the angels were. At one time, just in sconce, they lived there. You don't mess that. It's that kind of thing. What's the rumor? If you knock over an angel spike, you know, oh, you yeah. leave town, that kind of thing. Yep. So my sister was living there, and my father tried to get her out of that. And then she said, fuck, I'll leave her there. <laughs> yeah, she was a mess. I don't know if she's still alive. But it's true, folks, yes. Read about it in my upcoming book, <laughs> which is true. So I think Roger Corman, who was a opportunist, a filmmaker, a guy who tried to cash in on things that he didn't quite get the grasp of. I mean, let's let's be real. A lot of Roger's movies are entertaining, but at the same time, they kind of miss something. They miss a connection. They miss they miss like he's short. Sometimes the movie directors that Roger hired when he remained producer made better films than Roger as a director. If that makes sense, I hope it did. Roger wasn't t- totally out of tune with the counterculture. I think he was aware of the counterculture, but I just didn't think at the, at this point. Uh, this movie was released in summer of '66. He was really knew what was going on. Nancy Sinatra, of all people, as you said, is in this movie, and you know what? I think Nancy did a fine job. I think Frank was fucking pissed at her for years. <laughs> no, because you know the kind of role she played and the kind of film she was in. But is this the epitome of zeitgeist of Peter Fonda roles? No. no. Not in this picture. Not at all. So then he moves on to another Corman picture, which is actually a lot more enjoyable, but mm. whew, uh, which is The Trip. Uh, and it was actually written by, of all people, his future co-star, Jack Nicholson. Susan Strasberg pops up in this. I always liked her, despite the fact that her father was Lee Strasberg, the man who invented the method. Despite that, she's a good-looking girl. Bruce Stern's in it again. Dennis Hopper also shows up in this one, interestingly enough. Some other people, Dick Miller shows up once again. Rodney Bingenheimer, the L.A. DJ, who was... Yes, who recently passed away, yeah. If you know anything about glam rock and the early punk scene, big, big name there. Graham Parsons shows up in it. Angela Rosito, the famous midget. There's not a hell of a lot of plot to this one, Essentially, you drop right into it. Fonda is, quote, a very busy man getting a divorce from Susan Strasberg, though they don't seem too happy about it. 
He meets up with his weird professorial hipster buddy Bruce Dern, with whom apparently he's a plan to drop down some hippie hidey hole and drop acid, with Dern as his spotter in case he gets too high or whatever. The brief club scene where they meet gives us a cameo for that damn Dick Miller, his future Easy Rider part of Dennis Hopper, who later appears in one of his drug trips, glam rock radio DJ Rodney Bingenheimer, and the man who wrecked the birds, Graham Parson, Go figure. From here on out, it's all weird LSD flashbacks. Everything from screwing a surprisingly prim Strasburg, nice old lady slip she's wearing there, under oil washes and kaleidoscope filters, to pseudo-satanic rituals and Renfair cosplay with Angela Rosita. Oh, and we get some homoerotic interest when he has a bad trip in the rooftop pool. In hippie pad mind, they've got a rooftop pool. And Duran has to pull his butt-naked ass out of the pool and give him lots of man-to-man contact. It's like communal living, man, and nothing bent about it. Things get pretty hilarious when he flips out after a bad trip, gets all paranoid and freaky, and winds up running out in the street, pulls a home invasion, and has some weird interactions with a kid, gets weird at the laundromat with some scary housewife in a bonnet, and shows you just how bad the Easy Rider New Orleans sequence could have gone if directed by Roger Corman, who's such a square he even has hippie club waitress Lana Anders deliver a Nancy Reagan just-say-no diatribe. Strasburg has always been an enigma. She's fucking gorgeous, but over-emotes and pulls weird faces due to her being, wait for it, the door of Lee Strasburg the inventor of that detestable method that gave us literal generations of Hollywood schmucks with heads so far up their own asses they can almost see daylight. Like De Niro and Angel Heart, like I mentioned before. Nobody could approach him on set because he was the devil. Or Stallone having to put on 50 pounds for Copland. Or the story after story about actors flipping out and losing themselves because they were playing drug addicts or serial killers in some movie. Seriously? Existential authenticity, people. It's a silly, colorful film aptly paired with Psych Out on a DVD I got back when Best Buy was actually a real store instead of a half-assed PC Richards knockoff. What's your take on this one? Uh, <laughs> I find it interesting. I, I think he's trying a little bit harder than he did with the Wild Angels as far as Corman goes. Yeah. You know, Jack Nicholson now has become part of this group of guys who hang out. So, you know, Jack is... Writing, hanging out, doing drugs, most likely, so, you know, nobody can sue me. Dennis Harper, you know, we're, we're talking Dern. We're talking about a lot of characters probably just really, really indulging. Yeah, the movie doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Uh, I, actually, by far, Bruce Dern comes off the best, I thought, in this film. It's funny that you mentioned Susan Strasberg, because I just coincidentally been watching a lot of trashy movies with Jennifer O'Neill lately, and she, <laughs> she struck me as the later Susan Strasberg. Uh, I don't know why, but it was yeah. like, oh, over-emoting, under-emoting, hysterionics. Very interesting there. Mm-hmm. The movie has a great music. Did you just diss Graham Parsons? I could not stand that whole country period. Oh, my God. Oh, no, no, no. don't go there. <laughs> don't go there. Don't go there. Graham taught Keith some uh, very cool tunings. And don't go there. Anyway. <laughs> a ladies of the Canyon fan, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Woospaul. <laughs> I can't go ahead. I uh, I like that whole period, man. Come on. You're not alone. I, I used to argue with Do another you know, old hippie friend about this constantly. I'm like, God damn, they brought country back to popularity. Come on. Ugh. I'm not an old hippie. I, but you know what? No, you're I'm not. Friends, but Phil, <laughs> Phil Carson. You know who Phil? Not that Phil Carson, but Phil Carson was Graham's roadie and manager. And supposedly the guy that fucking buried him burned the body out in Joshua Tree. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that... 80-something-year-old man is still out there kicking. So, uh, anyway, we love to digress. <laughs> it's it's an interesting movie. Uh, I'm seeing some people have compared it to Bergman's Seventh Seal. No, what? but they, I, it's okay. I didn't even like the Seventh Seal. Yeah. 
So, what do I think of this movie? It's weird. It's strange. But again, I think I, I don't want to repeat myself. As as I said earlier, though, Roger Corman had he wasn't out of touch, but he had a bit, in my opinion, difficulty replicating on screen what he was trying to film, what he was trying to create. You know, in terms of like, making a movie for the young set, let's say. My feeling is that he was old and conservative but trying to be hip because he was hanging with and working with the younger generation oh this is what these oh, kids are into nowadays but you know yeah, he's an old man so it doesn't really work so, that's well, he wasn't favorite. that old he wasn't that old then I mean he's still alive now so so um, anything else you want to say on that one or no no alright so uh, next we move on to he actually moves over to Europe quickly to help his yes. sister out in a really underrated film strangely underrated uh, Spirits of the Dead wonderful movie wonderful we had mentioned this previously we talked about the Fellini episode and how fantastic it is now oddly I've heard people saying stuff about this and I, I think I addressed this when I did the write up that beyond the Fellini episode which everybody admits is oh yeah this thing is the best thing in the movie by far a lot of people really including Fellini himself hated the Vadim episode and loved the Louis Mahler, or at least accepted the Louis Mahler episode. The Louis Mahler episode is awful. And it has Bridget Bordeaux in Okay, she's unrecognizable. She's got a horrible wig on. She's barely in it. But that episode sucks. Whereas this one here is a typical Vadim and maybe even better than some of his pictures. I did like the sort of futuristic outfits mixed with this medieval dreamlike feel that he had going through the whole thing. It's very oneric. And I thought that, okay, it might not be totally representative of this small Poe. I forget whether it's a short story or a poem, because he did a lot of both. It wasn't one that stands out in Mexican style. But nonetheless, I thought that it did a good job. It did have that sort of Poe-ish, macabre sort of a feel to it. Certainly that oneric feel throughout. And I thought that Fonda herself did a good job of pulling off a decadent young woman, if you will. And Peter, of course, being the small part that he was, didn't get to do as much. But he looks good, and it works. So what I wrote was, I remember this film as being something of an outhouse waste, except for the excellent and creepy Fellini episode. Critics tend to celebrate that one, and occasionally give note to the incredibly boring Louis Mal one, with a very wasted Bridget Bardot and a Spanish Contessa wig, as being somehow not the piece of shit that it is. But everyone bitches about the Vadim episode, even Fellini, who pretended he was working with Mal and Ingemar Bergman in contemporary interviews. But I rewatched this one recently, and while Fellini's certainly still the best, Mal sucked even worse than I remembered, and I really liked Vadim's episode. I actually sat there and watched it twice. It, it's deliciously colorful and very 60s, sort of a cross between the Dark Ages and the Fumetti styling of films like Barbarella and Baba Yaga in fashion and style. Jane Fonda never looked better, I'll be honest with you. And she's believably insouciant and decadent as the cruel, whimsical heiress to a medieval kingdom. That was good enough for me already. But then you throw in the bizarrely queasy casting of her real-life brother Peter in the role of the mm. Countess's brother, whom she petulantly falls for, though he has no interest. This enrages her, and as a woman scorned, she burns down his farm and prize horses, killing him in the process. But this turns out to be her undoing, as his memory and visions of the black horse he rode haunt her, and change her into a far more melancholic and prim figure, eventually obsessing her onto her own destruction. It's very old-fashioned, yet with some very modern touches at the same time in both story and visuals. It doesn't beat the Valini, no way, but it's a worthy companion to it, no question. So I don't get why it had such a bad rep. Well, Spirits of the Dead was like our house flop when it first came out, and I I have to say it's you got an incredible cast here yeah. with these short films. you got Bardot, 
Elaine Delon. I've mm-hmm. always been a huge fan of Elaine Delon. Jane Fonda, Peter Fonda, Terrence Stamp, yep. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we got, actually, the world got many different versions of this thing. The, the best one is by far, as, as discussed previously, the Toby Dammit episode with Terrence Stamp. Absolutely brilliant, yeah. and it's, even even if it did steal from Bava's Kill, Baby Kill. But this Metzengerstein thing, yeah, it's freaky, it's weird, it's creepy, and it's very elegic. It's very romantic. So, in a way... It's the most Poe story of the three. It's the most Poe story of the three, but it's actually, for its time period, what are we talking here, like 68? 68. 68. It's accepting ancestral longings, you know, and, and and the consequences of such, and and it's not followed through in a disgusting way. It's no, kind of no, 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 under no, the surface, you know. It's, it's, it's decadent. Under the surface, it's a it's decadent. It's a very arty film. Yeah, no, we're not talking. <laughs> no, please don't get me wrong. We're not talking uh, filth. You know, we're not talking you know, porn, ex hamster, shit like that. No, we're talking. We're talking very artful take on that theme. Promiscuity, debauchery, you know, very wealthy people, which is something that, uh, something that, uh, who did the Andy Warhol, Frankenstein, Dracula's? Oh, uh, Paul, Paul Morrissey. Paul Morrissey and, um, something that, yeah. Margariti? Who was the guy that did it? Mar- well, Margariti is allegedly. But something that Paul Morrissey played with, with the Andy Warhol, Frankenstein, Dracula films, that kind of thing. You know, not not implicit, but implied that there are supernatural elements here that harken back to Poe. Yeah, it's it's very. I used the word allergic before. It's very calm. It's very yeah. poetic. It's very ethereal. And I'm mean, again by far the Toby Dammit's the best. And the William Wilson winds up being the less liked, the least remembered yeah. of the trio of films by. Probably because it's such a stinker. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's so much as a stinker. I just think, I mean, did these guys make longer films, and were they cut down to fit the trilogy format? I, I, I don't know. I can't answer that. It's just a lot of people have written about this over the years. I mean, Tim Lucas surely had, and many, many others, including uh, so-called would-be auteurs of cinematographic history. <laughs> no names. No comments. Uh, no comments. But, um, and some of these fuckers get paid for it. We do this for nothing. <laughs> it does, yes, that is not syndrome. an implication yes. of quality. That is an implication of... You know, <laughs> knowing people. Uh, so enough said. Go ahead. Yeah, we can we could do a whole show about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll leave that on the QT, but people will get the picture. <laughs> those who know know. Yeah, those who know know. Those who don't know, hey, people can't even fucking spell, much less get the facts right. You know what? <clears throat> no, uh, my, yes. my my co-host and I, we we have lives and we're busy, but we do this to entertain you, and we do it for fun too. And we had a hiatus for a while, but we're back, and I think we're better than ever. I think one of the things is we don't sell ourselves. We, we don't have the time, and we I think actually we don't have the gumption to go to labels and to go to people and say, hey, we can do this for you. If you listen to the show, you know we can do this. So the one thing I will say, and I, I've said it on occasion yes. on Facebook because I hate to out people, 
if you're going to do a commentary, please, 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 whoever's listening, and this can go for more than a few people, take notes. <laughs> Stop misidentifying actors. It still continues now. People misidentifying actors. I, I think what happens is people don't know who the hell people are. And it also goes for credits. And so they're, you know, they're doing this audio commentary. They're getting paid X amount. Probably not much, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but it's getting put out there like Arrow or Code Red. You know, fuck it if it's Code Red. Who gives a shit? But um, <laughs> Code Red, where all our prints are red. That should be the next day. I just watched another Code Red Blu-ray. It was red. Anyway, so... And did it have a commentary about those three assholes? I think they're comedians. The, the Nightmare uh, Continues, wherever they are. Uh, <laughs> unlistenable. Uh, unlistenable. All right, so, enough. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how this guy's... Th- I don't know where his money comes from. Anyway. Bryson. <laughs> anyway. So... Oh, really? Well, uh, anyway, enough of that digression. This was a malign but interesting film. Yes. Bringing us to... Bringing us to probably the crux of the entire show, not that there aren't excellent things thereafter. Uh, which is Easy Rider, actually directed by Dennis Hopper, who's already been in the trip with him, and Terry Southern, the famed author of the era, who wrote things like Candy. Phil Spector shows up in the damn thing, uh, Lucas Skew, the character actor, Luann Anders is back in this one, Michael Pataki, which opened a lot of stuff in the 70s, Jack Nicholson again, Tony Basil, you know, oh Mickey, you're so fine, here she is back when she was just a cute little girl doing her uh, dance routines, and the evil cross-eyed harridan from hell herself, Miss Karen Black, as we referred to her once when uh, talking about airport movies, so there's a quote, you know, this used to be a hell of a good country, I can't understand what's gone wrong. And if that isn't just as relevant, if not more so, in 2018 than it was in 1969, then you're just not listening. The plot is simple. It's a road film where two hippie bikers score blow-off of crazy gun-nut Phil Spector and plan to use the profits from the sale of same to head cross-country to New Orleans at Mardi Gras. They visit farms and communes, and they camp out overnight, picking up and losing stragglers along the way before finally getting to their goal, dropping acid with a couple of swinging whores, and finally getting gunned down by random hicks in a road rage incident. I've seen some revisionist nonsense about his character having a different name, and who knows, that may or may not have been in the script. I haven't seen the original script of this thing. But Peter Fonda plays Captain America, pointedly sporting a Captain America leather jacket and riding a Captain America model chopper. Presumably Disney Marvel suppressing this fact nowadays, but it's an important thing to recognize for just what this film is really all about and its relevance for the ages. He's the idealist and dreamer of the two, representing the idealism of the hippie movement that dawned around the summer of love in 66, saw a mass migration of young dreamers to points westward, namely San Francisco and a plethora of desert communes, student protests, and classic music festivals before imploding under the weight of Altamont, the Manson murders, and the Nixon presidency. He is that, quote, searching for America thing that launched a thousand cross-country road trips and represents hope. Dennis Hopper is dark and materialistic, the cowboy outlaw who's all business and rage throughout, which is doubly interesting when you realize that he not only co-wrote but directed the film. Effectively, it's him that brings them down, as well as the forces of reactionary status quo red state America, who detest the hippies and any deviation from an expected norm 
to the extent that they're moved to eradicate any dissenters. Jack Nicholson comes in late in the proceedings as a washed-up drunk of a civil rights lawyer, and he represents reality, neither the young ideals to fonder or the grim patriarchal Hobbesian anti-hippie and criminal that Hopper does, but more of a seasoned version of Fonda who has experienced the futility of affecting change in a world and society that simply doesn't want things to be better, something we're seeing very pointedly and firsthand among clueless Trump supporters now. Yes, please screw me in our collective future. That's what you guys are saying. Wake up. While Fonda gives rise to hippies, Hopper's in perpetual paranoid freakout mode, coked up and aggressive in even the most innocuous and laid-back of circumstances. The film is very much about the death or even the futility of the hippie dream, though if you view it through the lens of Fonda's character, hope will see us through to a better world. During the commune sequence, the hitchhiker who brought them there speaks of how they lost more than half their people during a hard winter without sufficient crops, and that those who are left are clueless city kids, but they're trying. While both the hitchhiker and Hopper express doubts, Fonda's sure they'll make it. Pointedly, Hopper is barred from the same access that Fonda gets. While both one of the girls and the hitchhiker actively try to recruit Fonda, you know, this could be the right place, time's running out, they actively stop Hopper from joining in their frolics, asking him, who sent you? They can suss out that he's not one of them, long hair and fringe leather jacket to be damned. They get busted for joining a parade, seriously, and meet up with Nicholson in jail. He tags along for all too brief a time, delivering one of the film's core speeches. You know, this used to be a hell of a good country. Can't understand what's going on with it. Man, everybody got chicken. That's what happened. Man. They're scared, man. Well, they're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, then? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. Oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. No, well, don't make them running scared. No, it makes him dangerous. And right after this, the Hicks come by and kick his head in. The two of them go on to New Orleans, get a fancy dinner, and visit the whorehouse that Nicholson appointed them to using his cash and crack open the LSD that the Hitchhiker gave to him at the commune with Tony Basil of Mickey fame and cross-eyed Karen Black, again, rather pointedly tripping out in the graveyard. And it's a bad trip, though, with naked bodies emerging from freshly dug graves, religion, and repressed traumas. It represents both their own impending death and the death of the hippie dream. As Fonda says in the final scene, when Hopper's saying, Yeah, we made it, man. We're rich. He says, No, man. We blew it. <laughs> no, we've done it. We've done it. Yeah, man. We blew it. What? <laughs> That's what it's all about, man. I mean, like, you go for the big money, man, and then you're free. You dig? We blew it. This film really says a lot. It said a lot about where society was, where the counterculture was at that point in history. And unfortunately, it's saying a hell of a lot about where we are today. And, you know, the question is, what will we do with that? Once you accept that knowledge, once you see, oh, here's the problem, here's where we're at, here's what we're giving up to be here, and we can be better... What are you going to do about it? It's, effectively, it's a call to action. At the time, it was a depressing statement saying, okay, look, we tried, we blew it, it's all over. 
but now it's well we're already in that depressed situation it's gotten much worse what are we going to do about it so i uh i've always loved this film i've always championed it I've had uh, a print of the poster that I got on some magazine somewhere, I don't know what, or a movie book, hanging on my wall for 20-some-odd years. Not even more than that, I was hanging in my old house. I had met Peter Fonda, got him to sign a still from it uh, several years back. He was high as a kite. <laughs> uh, where, where, where did you meet him? You meet your him? convention. Really? Yes. One of the last ones we went to. It was in the morning, too, so I'll give him that. Maybe he had just, you know, gotten up out of bed half-baked, but <laughs> he barely, knew, barely knew we were been, there. <laughs> it must have been one of the few ones I didn't work at. Oh, ah, yeah. But nonetheless, he was, once again, true to himself and his character. So I was amused by it highly. And, you know, like I can always say, hey, I met one of my heroes, so there you go. What did you want to say about this one? Uh, well, you spoke so eloquently about it. Uh, <laughs> What can I add to this? Um, what's a film that was and continues to be misunderstood? Yes. For the obvious reasons. You know, long-haired hippies make a movie, blah, 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 blah. They attached anything done in 1969 to Altamont, the end of the era. And that was incorrect. Luckily, some culture types recognize their worth in this film. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. It was nominated Writers Guild of America Award for Best Drama. So, I mean, hey, you know, the culture, <laughs> they were counterculturing, recognized them. What do I say about this? It's a very interesting movie. It's dreamy. It's a road trip. It's 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 a road, it's a probably a true road movie through America. And I mean, it's very, I'm trying to collate my thoughts here. It's very evocative and it's very happening now, considering how this film plays out, without giving too much of blood away, without giving any of the blood away, how the film plays out and how it ends and how the world is today. Yeah. And there are people out there that are the counterculture, that are the... The Peter Fonders, the Dennis Harper, the Jack Nicholsons, doing whatever they can. And it's, it's, everything has gone full circle, unfortunately. Yeah. And I would not be surprised. The police state that this, this country has become. I would not be surprised if there, if you had some free spirited guys trying to find themselves, find America, find purpose to their life and to the world. And somebody's saying, no, 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 you don't agree with me. And that's it. It's a very powerful film. It's, it's, it's shocking in its denouement, and today more so, because of the current state of the world the way it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can watch this movie and say, okay, maybe it's dated. The music's really good. The birds, hey. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of other good bands in there. And apparently, Robbie Robertson was really heavily interested, from the band, was really heavily interested in doing the score. And uh, something happened, and instead it was, you know, they ended up doing a mix of songs. But music is great, well thought out. It's, yeah, I have to say, seriously, it's among Dennis Harper's three great moments in film. 
that he managed to direct this fucking movie. <laughs> it, no, really, it, it's... Well, it was all improvised. That's the best part. There wasn't that much of a script. Yeah, I mean, true, true, true indeed. And I agree with you. I know about this stuff. Yes, I agree, but it actually managed to get released. It finished, yeah. cut, print. Unlike the last movie. <laughs> Unlike the last movie. But, I mean, when I said three greatest things, you know, the, the two other greatest things Dennis Harper did was that, that role in uh, Apocalypse Now mm-hmm. and in Speed with Keanu Reeves. <laughs> really? I Where, thought you were going to say, what was it, Blue Velvet, the, the Lynch film? <laughs> oh, I am sorry. I'm I'm on an anti-David Lynch kick right now. <laughs> no, no, David Lynch it was posted today in news media July 25th, 2018, that he thinks Donald Trump is a genius. Oh, fuck way, yeah. For the way he's doing things for America. So I posted something, and I actually had to take it down because right away people were saying, what are you kidding? He's a great filmmaker. I really like the last season of Blue. Fuck you. <laughs> How can this guy say this? Yeah. How can this guy say this? Wasn't James Woods that crazy, too? Yeah, but I'm sure people kind of sort of pseudo-respected, you know, for being a a Uche filmmaker. You know, he really respects Donald Trump and thinks he did great things for America by changing up the political system from the way we were thinking. Really? What are you drinking? (laughs) So, uh... From what the founding fathers intended? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Asshole. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, it goes par for the course that we may occasionally do some political uh, discords. Well, never more so than in a Peter Fonda show. Where we're yes, exactly. About writer. Thank you. <laughs> yes, never more so than in a Peter Fonda show. And let's remember on, something. Let's go we, on to the, the hired hand, right? Well, you're talking about a movie that had, and you mentioned about the soundtrack. There's a Bob mm. Dylan song in there that has a line, whoever's not busy being born is busy dying. And sure. those of you who were around for the six, I wasn't, but I know what that means. Basically, just to put it very vaguely, for those of you who have no idea what the hell I was talking about, it has to do with finding yourself and becoming who you are, in a sense, becoming as essentially authentic, like we talk about a lot here. Being who you truly are. Who are you really as a human being, as a person? What legacy do you want to leave to the universe? And if you're not doing that, if you're not going down that road... <laughs> Yeah, yep, you're probably standing there with Trump dying. I, that's I, what it's really all about. Let, let me tell you something. I was nine years old when this movie came out, and my dad was really unusual character. We probably saw us. 1969 was a very weird year. So I'm a kid, right? And so the newspapers one day had Charles Manson. Yeah. And Sharon Tate. And Death in Altamont. And Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah. Vietnam. Then you would come home. You're watching TV. We're not talking about PBS. We're not talking about uh, CNN. That those things didn't exist then. We were talking about ABC, CBS, whatever the fuck. The few we had few channels back in those days. Vietnam and Watts riots. Newark Watts riots. Newark riots. Newark, New Jersey riots, which people seem to forget were very powerful and almost as big. I heard tanks on the highways. Yes. Up all the exits. Beatings of gay Stonewall. Yep. Stonewall. I had a conversation with a coworker today. Coworker blurted out something about, oh, it's gay pride this weekend. Yes, I respect him. I said, really? <laughs> you respect him? I have gay friends. I've always had gay friends. I don't, it's not a matter of respect or disrespect. 
Those what? What are you talking about? What, what do you mean? You respect them? They're human <laughs> beings, people. I almost got into. I said, "Look, you know what? I don't think we should talk anymore because I think we're going to get into a fervent argument." <laughs> so, so, I think the world has gone back about forty years. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it was a couple of years later. But Attica, I mean, that says something about the private for-profit prison industry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. Wounded knee. Look what's happened with that. I mean, come on. We, we've just been backtracking, and it's really. Oh. Yeah, wounded, crazy the last couple years. wounded knee, and about two years ago, right before Trump took office, there was the one in South Dakota, the Indian reservation mm-hmm. there. And that right, oh, with the pipeline, yeah, just the pipeline which burst. We all said it would. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we we where's our people? You know, where where's where's the support? That's the trick. We've gone full circle. Some of the kids are trying. You know, it's not like nobody's out there trying. There is silent support from people that you talk to, but in the public, everybody just cows under and lets you know the fox crowd have their way, and that can't be if you want to have a free country. No, no. And, and another thing was democratically, which just ties into the Easy Rider story, folks. Democratically, we we have no one. There was a Biden Kennedy thing floated last week or two. I'm like, yeah, but yeah, they would take that apart like vultures. Yeah. I like Joe, but yeah. I like Joe, but you know, you, you know, I don't see it. The Democrats don't have anyone, and no. Bernie Sanders seems to be the only viable person. So somebody said today, coincidentally, this is true. Well, he's a bit old, and he's extreme. I said, you know, extreme. I said, yeah. extreme. You know, he might be the only man to get anything done. Yeah, we've got extreme right now. Mm. Maybe you need if, if you consider that extreme. Maybe we need that extreme because that extreme is the extreme of FDR and the New Deal. That extreme is the extreme of Theodore Roosevelt, who, by the way, was a Republican and the Square Deal. That extreme is the extreme of Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. That extreme is the extreme of the Muckrakers. I mean, we've a hundred years, an entire century of reforms saving people from things like child labor, exposure to toxins, the ozone layer, respecting human rights, respecting the rights of various groups. I mean, this is all being eviscerated with this asshole going and writing these little pieces of paper and throwing well, them at the desk I mean, I mean, proudly. Let's be honest. He doesn't even bend to Congress. Let's be, none of this is Donald Trump. Donald Trump was a charlatan. He was a failed businessman. He was a jackass. That nobody paid any fucking attention to. Even the rich made fun of him. Yeah, even the rich made fun of him. He was always an asshole. The Republicans were, the Republicans, in caps, were pissed that a black man was president for eight years. So, this is the true story. So, they want to retake it. Why do you think he's eviscerating everything Obama did? Because he was black. He did a lot of good things for America. And you know what? So did Bill Clinton. Okay, Bill, there's other things going on there, but Bill Clinton was a good president, too. And, you know, fuck. I'd rather have George Bush Jr. come back. Isn't that sad? It is sad. I've said that to my wife. I'm like, you remember how horrified I was during the W years and how I basically wanted to hide out because everybody was insane and we were practically getting into fights on the streets all the time with these flag wavers or whatever? And yet, I would have him back in a second. In a second. That guy has woken up or something. He's said some really intelligent things. Believe it or not, you know, the quote-unquote the village idiot. And he's totally against fucking Trump. George W. Bush. 
I'd have the guy back in a heartbeat over him. Well, well my, yet, my you know. thinking is that Trump isn't the guy who's coming up with this shit. This is the cabal behind him. That's Bannon. Bannon came up with this whole thing. That was his strategy. Oh, yeah. Bannon and Pence, you, the most, if we're going to call it black satanic. You know, <laughs> no, black, dark satanic. This guy claims to be a religious right-winger. There's something oh, very, very dark in his thinking. Well, for one thing, he's a closeted homosexual. That whole thing about I, I won't go near another woman unless my wife's there, and I got to do the, the gay shock therapy and all that crap. Please. But don't you see he's, something very dark in his thinking? I do. Oh yeah. I, I, no, he's a rotten person. He's a rotten person. At least we know the world won't end because in all the all <laughs> the world, the stuff I read over the years, the Antichrist was supposed to be a shockingly handsome man. None of these fucks <laughs> are handsome, so we're okay right now. Let's go on to the hired hand. On to, all right. So uh, next up uh, was actually the last movie, which I have never seen because it hasn't been in release for God knows what forty years. This thing, it kind of dropped in and out. I actually excerpted a little bit from the review of An American Dreamer, which was this film that Vinegar Syndrome dug up that was basically a sort of making of or behind the scenes while Hopper is off getting stoned and supposedly making this movie. And I said, there's really not a hell of a lot you can say about this American Dreamer, except as a fake reportage of what could arguably be considered Hopper's folly, both in terms of the flawed and quite troubled last movie, and his, quote, daily life at Taos as presented here and in. That life, however scripted and artificial it may actually be, comes complete with a commune-style orgy, hippie politics, a whole lot of dope smoking, and a heaping helping of self-delusionary psychobabble. In other words, in its own right, the American Dreamers are a reasonably accurate record of the era and its many foibles. We're talking about the very early 70s here. American Dreamer had its own issues with injunctions and lawsuits that left it with an abortive campus run and a much later, equally brief art house one. Its directors, Ellen Kit Carson, was a newly minted screenwriter and eventual actor. Partner Lawrence Schill was a similarly debuting director and producer at the time that they co-authored this little documentary. Effective their first production, and like Hopper, they last for several years thereafter. Schiller would bounce back fastest, returning to direction by the middle of the decade. Carson never directed a film, returning to screenwriting only at the end of the 70s, and acting by the mid-80s, believe it or not. Even Hopper dropped out of writing and directing for a full decade. This is 1971 mod, falling back on acting for a succession of unremarkable films throughout the 70s, before making an appearance in Apocalypse Now, and full authorship at the very cusp of the Reagan era. Clearly, the last movie in the American Dreamer with it would prove to be the last movie for everyone involved throughout the 70s. So, again, I've never seen this thing. I've just heard things about how it was cut. And then he was talking to Alexander Jarowski, the fellow who did The Holy Mountain. And he convinced him to make it more trippy and art house. So he kind of did a cut and paste thing like Burroughs or Byron Geisen or something and just kind of totally fucked it up using washes. And I don't know what the hell, you know, this is red screen. This is under a kaleidoscope. This scene doesn't match with that scene. Again, I've never seen it, but these are the stories I hear. Is there anything you want to say about this one? Well, well I, have, I have seen The Hired Hand years ago in the theater at the Cinema Village yeah. in British Village. It was a, a two-screen place. And uh, it was a chore to sit through. It, it, it seemed like a, <laughs> a bit of an unfinished movie. Yeah, Peter Fonda directed War Notes, the great War Notes. is in it. Brenda Bloom uh, perpetually... Blissy me, mature hottie from the days of TV and other things. And she was in Psycho, I believe, right? It's a... In a way, I guess it was maybe Peter's... Excuse me, maybe Peter's way of catching up with his dad's kind of 
westerns, but still it was very close to his own trippy, discombobulated. Uh, I don't want to say somnambulistic, but just spaced out version of what it would be to be a guy who comes on a range and fall for the wife of the dude who owns the ranch and and all the, you know and some of the leads look obviously stone except for the character actors I mean he's used some really good character actors very familiar faces in this film it's a bit of a mess and supposedly there's a couple of versions of this laying around and interestingly enough it didn't prevent him from directing because he did a sci-fi picture two years later. Did you ever see that? Idaho Transfer. No, i never seen it. Yeah, really interesting thing that I was dying to see for years. It turned up on a, what's that, Mill Creek video box set? Really? Yeah, one of those things for like for 15 bucks you can get 50 movies. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> Some of those were good. Yeah, uh, yeah. Some of those, you know... People used to trash Mill Creek, and I was like, well, I don't know, this version of this movie has, like, nudity, violence, etc., and it looks pretty close to what I saw in the theater, what I saw on VHS back in the day on this out-of-print tape. You know, why did people trash them? I don't know where the hell they're getting the stuff from, but anyway, Idaho Transfer, directed by Peter Fonda, I think the only recognizable, Peter's not in the movie, Keith Carradine is probably the only recognizable person in there. It's about a troubled mental patient, female mental patient, was taken out of the hospital by her father. And there's something about matter transference and time travel. And it's post-apocalyptic and maybe not. And, of course, it would be directed by Peter Fonda. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very small, I have to say it's a very personable film for him. This is the kind of thing that and I believe it did. Cinefantastic magazine, the old Fred Clark fanzine, really mm-hmm. uh, promoted pretty highly. But it didn't get much of a, a distribution. didn't get much of a release. A very hard film to find nowadays. I'm surprised none of these boutique labels have not put it out. Well, we can say that about a lot of Joe Don Baker films, which we'll talk about next time. So. True, yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, they could do a box out of those. No, I agree. So I, I, I'm surprised that nobody's put this out. It's a very thoughtful film. It's very incisive. It's a very intelligent movie. I don't want to misquote or misdirect anyone, but I do have it still. It's in one of those damn Mill Creek. It could be like Mill Creek's 50 best sci-fi films of all time or whatever the hell it's called, but I got one of them, and it's in there. It's sort of like 20 discs, and they're double-sided, and like, okay, you know, I think they're LP speed, VHS transfers. I don't know. Again, when they got to see. I saw. Is the movie great? No. Is it thoughtful? Yes. Is it is it intelligent? Yes. Does it belie things that are done in the mid seventies? I I would put it on on a, uh, akin to like a boy in the dark. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's probably even better than that because there's a lot of thought going on in this film. It's how do we say? Remember the Lathe of Heaven, the original. BBC one with Kevin Conway and Bruce Davison. That was very thoughtful sci-fi. And this is thoughtful sci-fi. And surprisingly, it's, even though it doesn't appear, it's really a good project from him. Got buried, I guess. 
So next up, he gets involved with the film that is also near dear to my heart. Not like Easy Rider by any means, but definitely one that I love him in. Dirty Mary Crazy Larry. Fonda and his pal, Bernie Coppell, look like Adam Rourke, pull a weird heist. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't he look like him? Rourke does a home invasion. Rourke does a home invasion slash hostage situation with the wife of a supermarket manager. While Fonda drops by the office casually and has the manager, who is the bookworm, Roddy McDowell, by the way, just hand him and all the store's takings. I gather this in the days before credit cards and check cashing. Meantime, the intrepid pair have picked up a straggler named Susan George, who Fonda banged last night and slipped out on. They're all white trash, with the guys trying to fund their entree into NASCAR. The next Dale Earnhardt and his pit crew kidnapping and robbing his way to redneck glory. George escaping her reputation as the local easy meat. And the cops are on their tail, making this a sort of proto-smokey in the bandit, but with a lot less corn pone and much better casting. I've always had a bit of a thing for Susan George that's come up on the show before. And here she's at her both most annoying... And at the same time, dizzy and likable. Almost like one of those madcap heiresses from a 30s screwball comedy. I mean, she's hardly Carol Lombard and my man Godfrey, but you get the general idea. It becomes something of a running gag, just how many times Fonda tries to dump her or to get her to storm off on her own initiative, only for Rook to point out, oh, well, we need her for one reason or another, and they have to turn around and pick her up again. Of course, her being there can be as much of a problem as leaving her behind, like when they swap cars at a local flea market. But she still manages to keep the cops on her tail by boosting some tchotchkes. The seller's on hand to point her out to them, which upends the entire point of the car switch. Like I said, it's kind of a screwball comedy in that respect. You have to have likable, if not good, actors in a film where most of the time consists of conversations in the front seat of a car. And this one definitely succeeds at that, despite the very 70s bleak ending. So, what's your take on this one? Uh, <laughs> I know you hate her. So. <laughs> no, I don't hate her. I don't hate her at all. If Susan George walked in here right now, it would suck my dick. I would love her. <laughs> but... <laughs> Oh, she's dead, right? I think she's dead. I have no idea. Well, that would be weird if she was dead. She wanted to suck my dick. Uh, anyway. <laughs> It'd be weirder if she was like 70 plus. Like, God! Uh, anyway. I'd rather have a dead Susan George suck my dick. So, anyway. I know that would get a laugh out of you. Uh, no, seriously? No, seriously? I, I don't hate her. I just never been on this bandwagon of like Susan George fans. It's probably one of the few things we disagree on vehemently. I had a friend who he used to write actually it's funny. It's fantastic and a couple other things. And he used to like I used to love Susan George. Like, really? What? <laughs> <laughs> like no, I, I saw uh what was that movie she did with uh, which one? Oh, the one about the nuns. Remember the nun movie? Uh, what was that? Uh, lesbian nuns? Oh, God. <laughs> Not the one where they were all smoking and drinking. What was it? Bad Habits. No, 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 no. Earlier than that. It's a course celebrity. It was Susan George and a much oh, older... Oh, Justine? The uh, the British version? No. No, no. Older than that. Kustork. <laughs> no, oh, yeah. I like Kustork. Kustork's cute, yeah. No, anyway. So, Susan George, for some reason, and you... <laughs> Uh, some guys really like Susan George. That's cool. You like whoever you like. I'm not a big fan of Susan George. But Adam Rourke, would you would you would you say Adam Rourke or Clay? He was a Bernie Coppell lookalike. Bernie Coppell. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! I could just think of Bernie Coppell like fucking get smart or shit like that. Doc from the low uh, boat. <laughs> uh, Vic Morrow's in this. Vic Morrow, the man, briefly. 
And Ken Toby from the original thing is in this. Uh, I can't remember Ken Toby in this at all. I I don't know. I a lot of people like this movie. It's still 1974. It's still tied up into the counterculture thing. Mm-hmm. The thing I find most interesting about it is directed by John Howe, who did a lot of Hammer films. Yes. And a lot of British thrillers. And it's like, what are you doing here? But And why Susan George putting on a hick accent? An American hick accent. Yeah, but you know, whatever. <laughs> I I don't know. I, I one of those outside people about Dirty Mary Gracie Larry. Although I will have to concede it does have a fan following. So uh, next up, he does one that's not that far removed, Race with the Devil, which oh. was actually written by Lee Frost, I believe, who did films like, what, what the hell was that? He did one of those original Ilsa-type films. Was it Love Camp 7 or something? And he's an infamous cult film director. So a weird cast enlivens this bizarre cross between a 70s road movie, RV culture, and the horrors of rural America slash satanic peril thing that was so huge in the decade after so many hippies went cross-country to find America and only found a bunch of dumb rednecks who wanted to kill them. Primo over actress Lara Parker, Angelique from Dark Shadows, Loretta Hotlips Houlihan Swit of MASH, counterculture icon Peter Fonda, and his recurring 1975 co-star Pudgy Warren Oates go out on a cross-country trip in the Winnebago, even taking the dog. Fonda and Oates are both motocross fanatics. Looks like Fonda does it professionally. Unfortunately, pretty much the first night on the road, they park out in the desert and manage to see a satanic coven do one of those mythical human sacrifices. Yeah, if there was that many friggin' human sacrifices, I don't think there would be uh, any satanic cults out there. But anyway, then Switch's big mouth, nagging at the guys, catches the cult's attention. From here on out, it's all car chases and never knowing who to trust in any of the towns they travel through or the faces they meet. The girls steal a reference book from the local library. Parker, who's pretty much cast for her ability to look wide-eyed and freak out incessantly, gets weirded out by leering locals at the town pool. The dog gets pinned to the door of the van. They visit a hillbilly trailer park complete with nosy neighbors, country music, and a huge bar fight. And they even hit a few country stores where they buy weapons until the usual 70s bleak ending, which sort of ties into both Easy Rider and Brotherhood of Satan, where all these backwards crackers are in it together against the rest of us. Kind of like Trump's America when you think about it. Fun but ridiculous. And the last 10 minutes or so, with all the lunatic hit drivers and glacial construction delays, remind me of a few road trips we've been on. And sadly, this film marks something that cut off in Fonda's career from a period where most of his films were quite entertaining and memorable, the one that's more hit and miss, even within the confines of a single film. So, what's your take on Race with the Devil? It's an interesting movie. Jack Starr has been primarily a TV director, and the few feature films he's done have been pretty brutal. Which is really fucking interesting to me. A lot of guys who worked in TV during the prime period, you know, 60s, late 50s, early 60s, when they got a chance to make a feature, they like kind of like went all fucking out. And and sometimes they made some pretty brutal, not great A Oscar material. We're talking like brutal fucking movies. And I think this is one of those odd, oddity films. Yeah, you know, Warren Oates is still a lot of a critics' favorite. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I have no problem with Warren Oates. And interesting peering and, uh, you know, different styles of acting. Yeah, the girls, they could they could do better with the casting there. I mean, Laura Parker, it's okay. Laura Swit, I can't fucking stand her. Yeah, same here. Probably because I have, like, a personal experience with Laura, Laura Swit. Good buddy of mine... I uh, was a big fan of hers back in the day, and she was on Broadway and uh, was the same time next year before it was even a movie with Alan Alda. 
And he says, oh, Louis, wait with me. I want to meet Loretta Sweet. So we went to see the show in Broadway. And uh, he waited at the, at the entrance, and it was raining. And she comes out. He goes, would you sign my autograph? And she goes, no. Why would I? She walked out into the rainy night. I was like, what a fucking cunt. <laughs> Always hated that bitch. So, yo, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, talk about MASH. Yeah, fucking probably gangbanged you all. <laughs> show. Anyway, so. Um, Hopefully Radar did it. <laughs> oh. Insult to injury. Uh, <laughs> no, but she was but always no, horrible. No. Getting back on, onto the theme here. It's a very interesting movie, I think. It's uh, creepy. And, yes, the final denouement is very bleak. Mm-hmm. And it's actually unexpected in a way because... In my view, you're hoping for the fucking people to make it through. See, this this is a bitch I have with a couple of these movies. And and bear with me on this. There's too many movies from this time period where you spent 90 minutes to two hours with these characters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they may not be great films. They may not be magnificent films. But you become invested over a period of time watching these films. And you might like an actor or not, etc., etc., etc. And... You get to the final dynamic, and it's bleak, and it's like, holy shit, really? Yep, that was the 70s for you, though. That's what they were saying. And, and, and you're right, yeah, it's the 70s. There were a lot of films of this type, and we, I think both you and I don't want to get too blatant about what actually happens yeah. at the denouement of this picture. But it was quite often around this time period that movies would end up where you were like, fuck that. And you, you know... <laughs> And they should have really rethought this process because you walk out of the theater going, oh, fuck. The whole idea is to walk out of the theater going, yeah, you got to see this movie, man. Yeah. The only guy to pull it off would probably have been John Carpenter, who had a bleak ending, but people still said, go see this picture, (laughs) which would be the thing. Yeah, that's true. I I, I think that's the only movie with probably the most bleak ending of all time. Mm -hmm. And people said, you still got to see this. (laughs) (laughs) And honestly, even though I enjoy the shit out of that picture, I really do. The atmosphere is really intense and much more so than the original. I prefer the original by leagues. And I don't just mean because of Howard Hawke's direction. I don't mean just because of the acting, which is fine in both films. But it's just... It's such an inferior remake, and yet it's probably one of the best remakes you're ever going to see. So it's kind of you're very divided on the picture. Uh, oh, it's a divided film. Yeah, yeah it's a divided film. We should probably do a show one day on uh, not a lot, but like you know a few key remake films and the pros and cons of the original versus the the remake, and that would be a really good picture because I too like the original quite a bit. Yeah. But the the remake has a lot of interesting things going on there. Mm-hmm. I'm not yep. talking about effects. I mean, no, the effects are horrible. I mean, they're not horrible. They're gruesome. They're gruesome. They're gruesome. Yeah, the hard to watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. It's yeah. horrible in the sense of, oh my god, I got to turn away. Not in the sense of they sucked. There was but, good but, work. It was just too good. It's still good work. <laughs> it's still good work. I I I watched that. I think I do like a bi yearly or maybe every three years. Yeah, I, that. I do something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like. Who the fuck? <laughs> Who the fuck is wrong with Rob Bottin? Oh, yeah, whatever. And I actually saw him at a comic convention when I was like, you know, a kid. And I was like, around the, probably around the time he was doing that movie. I'm like, what the fuck's wrong with this guy? And, you know, he's like a hippie type. He seemed likable yeah. enough, but wow. 
Anyway, so <laughs> next up in Peter Fonda's career, after many tangents, 92 in the shade. Um, mm. I was, I mean, you may have a different opinion on this one. I was forced to watch this a second time and prep for the show, and then it went right back to the sale box. So you know where I stand on this one right off the bat. Oh, One of the few truly awful Peter Fonda films I've ever seen. This is the sort of self-indulgent, boring pretentiously pointless mumblecore nonsense that drove the 70s crowd from the generally quite enjoyable fair the decade was known for straight into the arms of the dumbed-down, kid-friendly event spectacle film Steven Spielberg and later George Lucas, occasionally in partnership with Usher in the 80s with, killing the independent film market and boundary-pushing auteurism once and for all, leaving us with comic book films as the pinnacle of artistic achievement. Yes, this film is definitely one of the ones that shelved us there. <laughs> People were sick of this shit. I got this one release as a fan of Fonda, expecting something more like, I don't know, Fighting Mad, Dirty Larry Crazy Mary, only to get this aimless navel-gazing drama where Margot Kidder is more stoned than Fonda ever has been, Burgess Meredith gets to talk dirty and spout racist slurs like he's getting paid by the shock, and Mac on a scary old Sentinel castmate, Sylvia Miles. Oates looks awful. Everyone gets more screen time than Fonda. It's full of hicks, and there's some shit about shrimp boat tours for white trash or something. It's incomprehensible in terms of plot, and the script is ridiculous, so there's really nothing for the viewer to dig into. I'll bet the director really loved Altman's Nashville. It's that kind of disjointed character vignette thing, but to no real end and with thoroughly detestable characters that you don't care if they fall in that damn lake and drown together. Abominable, I said. So what's your take on this one? <laughs> well, well, this was a period that uh, post-counterculture people still coming down from the acid high mm-hmm. were, <laughs> were making movies and in this case it was Tom McWayne who was a uh, playwright and uh, banging theater actresses and I guess in this case it was Elizabeth Ashley who also appears in this movie and I don't know it's been a mess it's always been a mess I think Warren Oates and Peter Fonda struck up a friendship from Race with the Devil and it, it hung over into this picture. Yeah, I hear what you're saying about Margot Kidder. And, and this time period, this and reincarnation of Peter Proud, she looked like she would do anybody and everybody. So shocked that she ever got the Superman picture, which is like two years later. Really interesting. There. No bad words about Margot Kidder, but she was known to like fuck everybody in Hollywood. Yeah. So, I don't know what to make of this movie. I never liked it. I, Peter Fonda in it, it's just, nobody really made a positive, uh, nobody's likable, nobody stands out. Effect on me. Although he was much better in Killer Force. Yes, so next up is Killer Force, which is also known as the Diamond Mercenaries. Um, it's a weird 70s all-star heist film that's more parts than some. This incredibly disjointed piece of eye candy fluff is more notable as one of those starfucker projects than for any measure of coherence or logic. Events don't always follow one on the other. I mean, Fonda looks kind of ridiculous in a fright wig afro and scrubby hipster mountain man beard. He's in some military <laughs> operation. <laughs> oh, sorry, that was funny. That's good. <laughs> He's in some military operation in the desert that somehow has ties to diamond mining. Don't ask me. Telly Savalas in full Kojak mode comes in like he owns the disco, all flash polyester shirts and gold chains with overly snug dress pants, playing with his clothes as much as wearing them. He wants to make sure you notice how stylish he is. He's apparently a nervous insurance investigator who thinks of the fact that no workers are stealing raw diamonds must mean they're taking big losses. It's too suspicious. 
huh? Nazi. Uh, <laughs> finally gets an x-ray via a rubber hose up his ass. Literally. He even makes a joke about it to make sure he isn't smuggling diamonds up there. Immediate scene change. He's buying his hot model girlfriend, none other than Maud Octopussy Adams, an expensive necklace and getting busted by Savalas within seconds of giving it to her. He escapes, gets recruited by the evil smuggling ring, which contains an obnoxious OJ, pre-latex gloves, and a likely gay Christopher Lee, who seems to have zero interest in the opposite sex and takes sadistic pleasure in brutally murdering a hooker Fonda was involved with. Savala sexually assaults Adams for no apparent reason, and Fonda and his new pals make an armed assault on the military diamond mining compound, stopping to pick up his girlfriend on the way out just because, well, you know, she hasn't been subjected to enough indignity and danger already. Oh, and there's a fist fight with Fonda and some grumpy nobody rolling down a sandy hill just because the guy told him he's crazy to risk picking up his girlfriend. He could get all the ass he wants once they cash in. Crude, but not exactly worth the reaction he gets. It's ultimately a rather stupid and pointless film, but it's definitely watchable if you dig Savalas, Adams, or even Fonda, despite his weird role and look here. Just don't expect a proper heist film or the damn thing to make the least bit of sense. And a whole lot of sand. You gotta wonder just how Bailey's fell apart behind the scenes and just how stoned they were in the editing room. It feels extremely like a past job, so. Oh, yeah. Very cool perceptions. Uh, yeah, uh, it's. <sighs> What was going on with this movie? I mean, you got Hugh O'Brien, who's actually looking pretty fit, and Telly Savalos looks like he just got off of the uh, Spanish horror movie. What was that thing? Oh, right? um, Horror Express. Horror Express. It looks like he just, well, that was three years earlier, but looks like he just got off the set of that. And he's like walking around, he's got all his fucking jewelry. I, you know, really, you know, Maud Adams is like skanky, skinny. If you're really into skanky, flat-chested, skinny chicks, <laughs> fine. But, like, every, everybody's like, like, oh, you know, like, she's like the one. You know, I like Maud Adams. I think she's hot. <laughs> oh, no, she's ridiculous. I never I never liked her. I think she's ridiculous. And they, they that they put her in a Bond picture, which is, like, even more ridiculous. <laughs> Do you like the young Jane Seymour? Uh, yeah. Really? Okay. Well, I guess same basic type. Is that no, 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 no. Right but I like skinny. Long before Doctor Quinn, I might. No, no, no. Yes, I do though. like. I do like certain. I do like that type, but I don't like them. So, that being said, I thought it's an enjoyable but ridiculously entertaining movie. Yeah. No, it is. It, it's very entertaining. Yeah, there's a lot of sand, as of what you noted. It's directed by Val Guest. Yes. Of all people, who did Quatermass. some terrific. Yeah, Quatermass <laughs> is some terrific early Hammer films. I mean, Val Guest is the man. Mm-hmm. So this is him uh, 16 years later. Filming it? I don't drunk. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, uh, we got Christopher Lee. and I don't know what I can speak of the, to add to what you said. And OJ, uh, pre pre crazy OJ. He was so obnoxious there. Uh, uh, a lot of sand. I do remember a lot of sands. A lot of scenes of guys driving around in jeeps and sand. Almost like that mm-hmm. cheesy movie Kill and Be Killed. Remember that? Oh yes. Oh, that was terrible, but fun. Yeah, Same terrible idea. but fun. Uh, so I guess I think just by perchance. Of all things, this is saved by Peter Fonda, who does an atypical role as a bearded mountain man, as you describe him. Uh, guy finding, uh, fighting off the diamond mercenary guys who he works for, which is kind of fucking confusing. And how did he get that money for the necklaces? He obviously didn't steal the diamonds because they just stuffed the tube up his ass to make sure he didn't. Like, what the hell? 
<laughs> he probably pissed them out. So, <laughs> see, we didn't get that. That was in the outtakes. Pissing out big, huge diamonds out of his dick. <laughs> I, I hate to think of that. It sounds very painful. Passing anyway. a stone. Wow. That gives new meaning. <laughs> anyway, future world. Right? Oh, <laughs> no, actually, next was Fighting Mad, I think so. It's hard to tell when they're in the same year. So this is a Jonathan Demme film. Okay. You know how we were talking earlier about what a square Roger Corman is? Now we get to see just how cynically manipulative he is. Apparently, Corman sat there and analyzes the story behind us. He analyzed three other recent low-budget rural action thrillers that were big hits. He looked at Billy Jack, Joe Don Baker's Walking Tall, and the aforementioned Dirty Mary Crazy Larry. Oh, look, what have they got in common? A hero with a weird sidekick, a funky vehicle of some sort, and an unusual weapon. So what does he come up with? Peter Fonda back on a motorcycle with his kid in tow using a crossbow. Seriously? It's like DC Comics where one of those clueless old man editors like Murray Boltonoff decided sales always spike when there's a gorilla on the cover. Find a way to add a gorilla onto every cover. Really, please. Anyway... Fond is a farmer with a brat kid who can't just stand by and watch when assholes pull shit on others, which means he's got something of a police record. When some rich shithead decides to build a factory right on top of his and his neighbor's ranch, they have the pigs on their side despite going so far as to kill his brother and his pregnant wife, beating the crap out of Fonda, pulling eminent domain-style demolition on people's homes, dropping huge rocks on occupied houses, killing sympathetic judges, setting fire to a barn full of horses, and baiting the neighbor into fighting back so they can kill him for his property. But, you know, the law's on their side. When things finally get to the breaking point, Fonda gets fighting mad and takes him down Billy Jack style. Lynn Lowry's in full-on hippie mode here, and you get yet another of her nude scenes, this time gone full natural, complete with pit hair. Eh, good by me. Too bad the rest of the film is such a downer. Not enough of an action film, zero laughs, and not even cultish enough to be a exploiter. This one's pretty damn mainstream in the vibe, which is surprising, despite its origins and cast. Probably due to Jonathan Demme's inclinations more than anything else about this project. But it is watchable. It's just, as you, you can hear the problems with it. So, what's your take? I really can't add, no, I really can't add anything to what you just said. Yeah, it's, I have to agree on that one. <laughs> so next up, he does Future World. So I remember my folks taking me along to a drive-in double feature of this in Westworld when I was rather young. I apparently mm. fell asleep early into this one. I saw Westworld. And as it was someone ever aired on television thereafter and had kind of a spotty availability on home media since, I always kind of regretted not seeing the damn thing at that time. So I finally did prep them for the show. Well, Westworld it ain't. I mean, Richard Benjamin was such a Ubelgan, likable, even self-effacing sort, and Yul Brenner's presence, even as an evil robot cowboy, kind of stood out dramatically in Westworld. But here you get some cute playfulness between the two leads, which is sort of warmish, if you can tell. You can tell that they at least enjoy hanging out together. But right. in place of the more straightforward sci-fi horror and strong leads of the first film, you get a weak, almost proto-Moonraker thing at the outset. And mind, this is before Star Wars, but even before that, the 70s were totally obsessed with space after the first successful mission to walk on the moon closed out the 60s. And some stupid thing about a loser who makes his own best friend out of a salvage robot that ends up turning into a very post-Watergate paranoia thing about body snatching and cloning. You can see also films like Clonus, The Clones, Boys from Brazil, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 70. Mm. Even episodes of the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man, Linda Carter, Wonder Woman, Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic Woman series. It was a big thing at the time. So Fond is a bit stiff, as he tended to be from around this period forward, but he's still likable enough. And while she's hardly the stunner that her daughter would eventually become, you can see where the genes came from in Blood Danner, who, despite a perfectly hideous 70s flip hairdo and a croaking, oversmoked voice, seems to be loads of 
fun. Having a ball being playfully romantic, sort of feminist, and just playing girlish all at the same time. I don't know about the rest of you, but I could have really fallen for a girl like that. And Like I said earlier, it's clear that she and Fonda got on quite well, which certainly helps. I, I saw this in the theater, and I liked it quite a bit. It's no Westworld. No. That they brought back Yul Brynner, which which was kind of surprising for like even like a small cameo. In a way, we can sort of criticize something like this, but then the whole thing is they took the themes from this 90-minute, you know, three years later sequel to Westworld, and they made a whole miniseries out of Westworld for HBO. Yes, which stole. A lot of ideas from Future World, although they amplified them greatly. <laughs> uh, they they added a lot of crazy ass sex and stuff like that. Not for Future World, but for Westworld, the HBO show. Interesting in that Richard T. Heffron, the director, was not really known for fantastic great movies. Yeah, it's a whole. This is the whole time period. Very strange auteurs. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael Crichton, who did Westworld, wrote. Westworld, and yeah, he was the guy who was like this six six foot plus dude who was uh, a writer as well as a physician who wrote sci-fi influenced stuff, and he directed quite a few type of movies of his uh, type. I think he did Coma before he passed. Coma and a couple of other things before he passed away. Uh, Michael Crichton, he wrote a lot of books. Richard T. Heffron was a uh, like a TV type director, and he wasn't really well renowned for doing something outre. But Mayo Simon, who was one of the co-writers of the screenplay, was known for outre stuff. So it was kind of interesting. Like they probably said, "Well, we got the script probably laying around from this like really weird out there." sci-fi writer will have George Shank, one of our in-house guys, work with him, and we'll retool this to make it a Westworld sequel. And uh, it's a little slick looking, but I, you know, Peter Potter doesn't come off too bad. It's still an AIP film, which is interesting. Probably one of the last of the AIP films. Mm-hmm. American International. Not horrible, by far. It's better than its reputation, by far. Let's put it that way. Yes, thank you. Yes, yes. That's good summation. Yeah. So next up, uh, he's involved in more mainstream stuff, more or less. But we got a couple of oddities. The Cannibal Run, which was another Starfucker project. It was a cable staple back in the day. And while I don't recall it being particularly funny, that bit with the proctologist only needing one tool when he shows his long, gnarled middle finger, is still stuck in my head decades later. It's like a Mad Mad World updated for the me generation. That's so long and short of it. And I'm sorry, I like Burt Reynolds and Gator, but Burt Reynolds is a complete fucking asshole. So, <laughs> anything you want to say about that one? Oh, I, you know, I saw this, and I think I have to, I may have seen the sequel at some point in my life. You know, at one time, Burt Reynolds was like the number one star for like, I don't know, five, six, ten, oh, yeah. ten years. And, hey, more power to him. Now he's a mess. I don't know what the hell happened to him. The last thing is like Amazon Prime, and he looks like he's a post-stroke victim. I don't understand. He was in this with... Roger Moore, Farrah Fawcett, Dem Delaware, Dean Martin, the great Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., yeah, baby, <laughs> Adrian Barbeau, Jamie Farr, Jackie Chan, the fucker list goes on. Bert Convy, the game show host. <laughs> Bert Convy, the sleazy bitch. Bianca Jagger, Jimmy the Greek before he got busted. Yeah, Jimmy the Greek, right? 
Mel Tillis. I think Frank is in this, too. I think Frank Sinatra's in this fucking thing. Wow. I mean, like, you know it's got to be good. So, um... Uh, uh, Peter has a walk-on as a biker dude, but it's it's just I don't know. You know, I have to say it's be- Lewis Ball says it's better than the Smokey and the Bandit films. Oh yeah, yeah <laughs> they're kind of in that deer of the world's career. So next up, he winds up in Spasms, which is a strange one. It's a bizarre Canucksploitation effort attempting to capitalize on the late 70s thing for snakes, Jaws of Satan, Venom, Stanley, and so on, and mixing it with parapsychology. Oliver Reed, who we did a show on, who also recently came off the aforementioned Venom, is pretty bloated as some rich loon who thinks a giant monster snake worshipped by natives in goofy masks, which he just happens to have procured and brought to North America, has a psychic connection with him. That's right, he has a psychic connection with a monster snake, which is worshipped by voodoo natives. Uh, (laughs) And by the way, some freaks from that red state religious cult that dances around with snakes, because they think Jesus will protect them from dying of venomous bites or whatever, are suddenly Satanists, Ooga Booga, who will set it free from Fonda's pal's herpetology lab to roam the city killing folks. A freightwig summer stock type named Kerry Keene attempts to keep up with Reed's drunken overacting as his supposed daughter and Fonda's new lady friend, only to push her performance right into cartoon territory thereby. Good luck keeping up with Oliver Reed, lady. Uh, <laughs> like most of Fonda's post-70s work, he's clearly phoning it in with an eye to a quick paycheck, while Reed and the rest of the cast overplay to the point where you're asking the director if he's got a pickle to go with that ham sandwich. So, what's your take? <laughs> it's probably really interesting to see probably a, uh, a dialing it down, obviously dialing it down Peter Fonda, and probably maybe even... Uh, Calming down Peter Fonda with a over amplified <laughs> Oliver Reed. Uh, although I, I enjoy some movies by William Fruitt, this is not one of them. This is a complete mess. This one. It is. It's really uh, bad. Although it does have a decent Tangerine Dream score, it, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Gerald, no two ways about that one. So, speaking of sucks, Certain Fury in 1985. It's not exactly a primo role for Fonda. He only shows up at the halfway point of the film and isn't in a hell of a lot thereafter. He's a sleazy drug dealer who eats melon balls on the point of a knife, which he also uses to trim his fingernails, and bad girl Tatum O'Neill is attempting to use her past relationship with him to scam a hideout in extra cash, but only winds up getting her face slashed by him. Things get even better when the local sleazy cop cuts an exchange deal with Fonda, get me the girls, I'll let your pals out of their jail sentence. So now they got drug dealers and the cops on their tails. This is the last you see of Fonda, though his guys had extra peril when the girls wind up holding in a shooting gallery, where a just post-fame Irene Cara gets shot up with horse and suffers what must be her third or fourth attempted rape during the course of a single film. Yeah, it's classy, folks. Fonda's men set the place on fire for no apparent reason. It's an absurd bit of 80s cheese, sort of a cross between Thelma and Louise, Streets of Fire, and Act of Vengeance, otherwise known as Rape Squad, if you didn't know. But it can be entertaining if you're in the right mindset and enjoy this sort of no-budget, day-glow, Reagan-era foolishness and don't mind some real indignities being heaped on your leads. Wow, how can I add to all that? <laughs> no, I, no, I think it's... Enough of that one. I, I can't add to that or 
detract. So there's only two other films worthy of note as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wound up in Nadja in 94, which was this bizarre art house film. It was actually David Lynch is in the damn thing as a cameo. It's supposed to be a vampire film, and this was around the period when I and a lot of other people were big on Anne Rice and the whole resurgent gothic scene that right. came to the U.S. at that time. But it doesn't really work because she's... It's almost like, first of all, she's a lesbian vampire, and it's a Carmilla sort of thing, but not mm-hmm. really. And there's this whole thing about her father, who is supposed to be Dracula. She's trying to find out the guy who killed him, which was Van Helsing, which is Peter Fonda, who is nuts, by the way. It's just really a mess. It's black and white, of all things. We're talking about 1994, it's in black and white. I guess it had some sort of appeal to a certain marginalized crowd crossing art house and the gothic vampire crowd, but really doesn't work for either, as far as I'm aware. I mean, some people did talk highly of it, but I was always kind of nonplussed by it. I remember it was shot in the high def, even though it was in black and white, it was shot in the high def black and white, uh, Pixel 2000, which could have been one of the more popular digital cameras at the time period, where you could switch to movie-making mode. And Saul fucking what? <laughs> Actually, D- Jared Harris is in this, and uh, Richard Harris's son. Uh, he would appear in a number of pictures over the time period that we're talking about. Martin Donovan, who was in some interesting movies around us. Susie Amis. Yeah, you mentioned David Lynch as a Morgan tendon, and he can pretty much stay there. Uh, <laughs> I I saw this. And I was nonplussed by it, and I have yeah. to say, I my memory is very vague, but I, I know I saw it. It was actually in two films that you could mention briefly. I have nothing to say about Escape from L.A. I was totally put off by the horrible CG and the over-reliance they were on, so even mm. though I'm a Carpenter fan, I've never actually seen the film. Oh! Uh, oh! And oh! <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh! <laughs> no, I saw that. I saw that. Wow, well, you've never seen it. I saw it. Okay, Escape from L.A. picks up a couple of years later from Escape from New York. Daw is inferior. They have a lot more money to play with. This is a 1996 film. I really, really, really looked forward to this movie. It's like, you know, everybody loves Escape from New York. Yeah, of course. It's a great movie. Uh, it's a great movie. It's still a fucking great. I, I, I watched it not too long ago. I was like, oh, fucking movie's great. It still holds up. Like a lot and, of Carpenter films. Yes. Yeah, so 16, 17 years later. And so they bring it back. Kurt looks a little buff. Some people say look beefy, beefy buff, whatever. Fuck it. And, you know, we got pretty much the key personnel, but I believe Lee Van Cleef had passed on. Yes. So it's a lot of strange things. So I don't know if it was studio interference, but we got a combination of... Maybe this is harkens back to to the Peter Fonda days of like, let's go for the gusto. We've got some really straight. We got Steve Buscemi as like a, a, a map to the stars guy. You know, you know, one of those guys like I know yeah. where you want to go. Cliff Robertson's now the president, who's you know, I guess in the Donald Pleasance mode. Stacy Keach is now like the guy who's in charge instead of Lee Van Cleef. Pam Greer. It's like supposed to be transactional, so voiced like a, by a dude. Why? Bruce Campbell is a disfigured surgeon and totally wasted, mind you. Totally wasted in the role. It's like this, this, this like 
psychopathic, psychopathic fuck. I just like really, I don't know. We're talking about like Paul Bartel, Robert Carradine, lots of familiar exploitation and movie. What do you call those kind of movies you go to? Everybody goes cult movie, like cult movie, yeah. cult movie night fans. You know, people go to see like, oh, it's cult movie night. Let's let's go see our favorite cult movie from the last ten years. Midnight movies. Yes, thank you. It felt like that midnight movie thing. And like Peter Fonda shows up as like a skateboard riding dude. It's not horrible. It's not what we wanted. It's quite possible we may one day see the Snake Plissken movie. We really want to follow up Escape from New York. I don't know. If they ever make that one with Gerard, I'm getting Fat Butler. I I don't think it'll work, but because they've been threatening that one for years. And, uh, you know, I, I, Gerard Butler's a fine guy, but uh, I, I just don't think he's right for it. But anyway, so does Peter Fonda have any kind of presence that we remember in this? No, he plays a surfer dude enough. So the last one I wanted to get to at all was 2007, so we're talking about 10 years later now. So oh, he's done like jack shit. He pops up in Ghost Rider. And who is he? He is old Scratch, old Nick himself. Was it a fantastic role? No. Was it entertaining and amusing to see him there? Like, oh, look, it's Peter Fonda. He's playing the devil. Ha, ha, ha. Yes. It was a um, a high point in a film that was basically pure camp and cheese, as you expect from a Nicolas Cage film, much as a Nicolas Cage superhero film based on a really cheesy character. But, you know, was it a great film? Hell no. Is a film that you want to be remembered for? No. It was more of one of these... Um, nod to, like you mentioned, here's some cult actors that you might recognize. Let's pull them in for stunt casting and to give them a nod to their past work, because we like them, and you might like them too. Here they are. <laughs> That's it. That's really all you can say about it. What, what was your take on it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually like the, the direction of those guys when they did the Jason Statham movies. Oh, God, what were those movies? What were they called? Crash Porter? Oh, the Crash no. movies, yeah. The Crash movies. Uh, crash or Crank, I forget which. Crank, Crank. Sorry, folks. Crank and Crank High Voltage. Thank you. I I don't think they were the right choices for this. Yes. The subject of our show does appear in this film. I However briefly. However <laughs> briefly. I, I did want to note before we go off that a few years before that, in 97, Peter Fondo did get he played a beekeeper who had a drug addicted son and daughter and he was a golden globe winner best actor for a movie called Uli's gold 97 oh, yeah, yeah. yeah new york film critics award for best actor nominated for best actor for academy award which means he got fucking screwed don't don't all the good actors get screwed but I think there's six or seven more, six or seven more Best Actor awards he was nominated and won. So I saw this slow into older Peter Fonda, and he was very good in it. Not maybe our kind of genre film, but it's not a genre film. But yeah, more power to him. And I also saw him in 310 to Yuma with those powerhouses, uh, Russell, I'm getting bigger by the minute, Crow, and Christian Bale. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like Russell Crowe, but damn, boy, you gotta lay off those chips or something. Right? 
So, is there anything else you want to say about Peter Fonda? No, no. Uh, Peter Fonda is like our uh, yeah. We said on the outset, he's our counter counterculture hero. Remains to this day for a variety of reasons. Respected by those who he means something to. Him. Mm-hmm. Probably denigrated by a great deal, including the now Trump fanatics. Mm-hmm. And he was a very original, idiosyncratic actor, mm-hmm. but uh, if for nothing else, but Easy Rider. Yes. He will forever be remembered. Yes. Captain America. Yes. When man went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere, as the tagline goes. So, um, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat. I'm Mr. Peter Fonda. Next time, only in the 70s could a beefy, drawling television character actor change gears and morph into not only an action hero, but even arguably some measure of sex symbol to an audience bedazzled by an aging Vegas Elvis and the good-humored down-home charm of Burt Reynolds and Chris Christopherson. After nearly a decade toiling away in bit parts on series from Honey West and Gunsmoke to the Mod Squad and Mission Impossible, Texan good old boy Joe Don Baker brought a like rootsy appeal to his roles, from the corn-pone death wishisms of breakthrough hit Walking Tall, to roles with kung fu specialist Robert Klaus, Golden Needles, as hard-boiled, vaguely noir-ass detectives Mitchell, Speed Trap, in outright horror films The Pack, and as crusty authority figures to kill a cop in power, sometimes even in comedies Fletch, Joysticks, and <coughs> Leonard Part 6, uh, eventually landing a recurring role in both the Dalton and Brosnan runs of the James mm. Bond franchise, yeah, yeah. he'd spend later years filling in for Carol O'Connor and in the heat of the night and working artsy critical faves like Cape Fear and Reality Bites, even dropping in for a spot in late 90s comedy smash Mars Attacks. Remember more these days for being sent up mercilessly in no less than two memorable episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Join us as we delve deep into the Deep South, braving those crawdads, poke salad, chitlins, and greens for some tasty down-home cinema to talk the films of the inimitable Joe Don Baker, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. Walk softly and carry a big stick, the films of Joe Don Baker. So, uh... Anything else you wanted to wrap up with? Yeah, yeah. I, I do want to say we're, we're actually not going to knock Joe Don Baker. We both actually like no. him. And it'll be a very interesting show because uh, the breadth of the roles he's done. You see, he's the kind of actor, and we'll, we'll, we'll be discussing this next. He's the kind of actor who doesn't epitomize what he appears to be. He's not your typical character actor. So he's the kind of guy who goes against the grain, which probably why it worked. So please turn in, tune out, whatever. <laughs> tune out, turn in, smoke up, whatever. <laughs> Our shows are always fun. So yeah, uh, you got to be a little bit uh, chemically or uh, humorously unbalanced to enjoy it. But here, here we go. Uh, so if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, and like to join us on here, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter, at weirdscenes1. Weirdscenes inside the gold mine, brought to you by the non-existent Big Papa Online Network. I'm <laughs> <laughs> <Blog> Talk Radio. <laughs> uh, all right, so another one for the record, folks. All right. Good night. Take care.
see. Just listen yeah, to the reactions yeah. on that one. You're just great. <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how we're going to tie in ants to Peter Fonda, but... <laughs> A lot of road movies, man. You're out in that dusty, you know... <laughs> Living off the earth. There you go. There you go. The foil off this lovely wine bottle here. Yeah, it's your favorite. Yeah. Oh, I have to try this. Yeah. Yes, I drink a lot of that and a lot of uh, Middle Sister Rebel Red. Those are my favorites. Wow. Was it Goblet? Yes. <laughs> when uh, the Total Wine opened up there uh, over here, they gave out. You had your choice of beer glasses or a little wine goblet, so I'm like... I don't really drink beer. I was never a fan, so I uh, went for the wine goblets. Mm. So, right. yeah, let's get rolling. Every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level. Bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. 
This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving Towards Life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the Katie, the career, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Napa know-how. Right now, you can get a $20 prepaid Visa gift card by mail with the purchase of a Napa Legend Premium Battery. Its durability and power make it the obvious choice for people who hate getting stranded by a dead car battery. So pretty much everyone. The Napa Legend Premium Battery and $20 back. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care Centers. Limit two per household while supplies last. Offer ends 228.19.